So last month, there was a considerable amount of attention centered around the death of the last male northern white rhino named Sudan. At 45 years old, Sudan suffered from an age-related infection, and he was euthanized on March 19th, as per Smithsonian.com. Sudan lived at the Old Pajita Conserva- uh, Conservancy in Kenya, which uh, is the largest black rhino sanctuary in East Africa, and puts forth great effort into conservation of wildlife. Today's episode of the Ask a Scientist podcast focuses on conservation. What is it and why is it important? Here to help answer these questions is Zingli Giam. Hi there. So my name is um, Zingli Giam and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UT. Um, My research focuses on characterizing and mitigating anthropogenic impacts on the environment with a particular emphasis on freshwater and stream ecosystems. Um, So right now, our group's project ranges from looking at climate change impacts on fishes in the southern Appalachians to looking at uh, coal mining impacts in Southeast Asia. Oh, nice. That sounds really interesting. All right, so let's just go ahead and dive right into the questions. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about the concept of conservation? So what exactly is conservation? Um, Basically, conservation in short, it means ensuring the persistence of the different species of animals, plants, fungi, and microbes, um, and these are collectively known as biodiversity, um, living on Earth. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how is that implemented? Um, conservation might entail a combination of protecting the habitats these animals are known to occur in or live in. Um, it might involve actively restoring this habitat. It might involve curtailing direct threats such as hunting, um, bushmeat consumption, overfishing, mining, pollution and climate change. Um, It also involves monitoring wild populations to see how well they are doing. Um, And in some cases, ex situ breeding programs and reintroductions of species are necessary. Okay. Um, So, to me at least, it seems really obvious to protect species that have a blatant need to survive. Um, So, like, such as, like, bumblebees, uh, because they are in charge of, like, pollinating flowers and all that sort of stuff. So, um, in terms of conservation... Why is this something that we should pay attention to for other animals that might not um, exactly like have a very obvious need, uh, like bumblebees? So I think we need to pay attention to um, all species, including species that uh, do not, um, or species that do not confer um, any benefits to humans, or or there are some species out there that actually do confer some non-trivial benefit, but you know, we don't currently know of the benefit that it confers. Mm -hmm. So my PhD advisor at Princeton University um, coined this term and it's called the night parrot effect. Mm -hmm. So the night parrot is one of Australia's rarest birds and it was um, thought to be extinct, um, you know, uh, from the wild in Australia but was recently rediscovered again. So the thing is that uh, this species is one of those species that would not have any discernible uh, benefits for humans. Mm-hmm. It's not a species that um, bird watchers would want to pay money to watch. Yeah. So it's really important to understand that uh, we should not um, conserve species just because of their benefits to humans, but it's also our moral imperative to conserve um, all species. And we also do not know you know, what benefits um, this species might have to humans in the future. Mm-hmm. 
And ecologically, we know that ecosystems are really, really complex with um, many ecological linkages between different organisms or species. Um, and it's really difficult to tell how important ecosystem functions like nutrient recycling or climate regulation might be compromised when mm -hmm. one or more species are lost from a particular area. And, um, and this is why, you know, for uh, precautionary purposes, we should really aim to not lose any species because we are not sure of what kind of ecological cascades could occur or could result from losing species. Right, okay, that makes a little bit of sense. Um, so going more into that, what are some of the reasons that species can become endangered or go extinct? Um, yeah, so one of the most important reasons is um, really habitat loss mm -hmm. and um, this occurs through land cover and land use change and more specifically deforestation mm -hmm. in the tropics especially because we know that um, the tropics harbor most or the majority of the earth species. Mm -hmm. So high deforestation rates in the tropics in recent years have really resulted in the loss of many populations mm -hmm. of species. Um, so deforestation is a process where land that's originally covered by natural forests are being replaced by other different types of um, land covers or land users such as um, oil palm plantations in tropical Asia, mm -hmm. um, pastures and soybean cropland in South America, or various types of agriculture or mining land in the US. Mm -hmm. So you know, um, all of this amounts to a loss of habitat for, for organisms, and because they lose their natural habitat, they may not be able to survive in this habitat, the new habitat anymore. Okay. Yeah. And also, like closer to home in the southern Appalachians, we know that freshwater mussels have um, gone extinct and ma many of them are currently being severely endangered or threatened, likely owing to the loss of their preferred habitat, which is like fast-flowing, shallow rivers um, due to the installation of dams. Mm -hmm. So habitat loss affects both terrestrial species and freshwater species. And there are many other reasons as well, such as um, the direct human exploitation of animals, like you know, big, large animals are being poached, and these large animals include tigers, mm -hmm. rhinos, and sun bears are being poached for their body parts. Um, and then there are certain um, animals, um, such as um, slow lorises, sloths, and tropical birds, they are all being trapped for the pet trade. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there are other factors such as invasive species, like species that are not originally occurring in a particular region that are then being introduced and they may affect the native species that are occurring in the area. And one example is that example of the hemlock woolly adelgid, which is an insect introduced from East Asia that is um, currently uh, threatening hemlocks in the eastern US mm -hmm. by disrupting the flow of nutrients from the roots up to the canopy. And last of all, you know, one of the most important threats that are likely to affect biodiversity in the coming years would, I guess, be uh, climate change, and the impacts of climate change will only intensify in the future. Mm -hmm. And all of these stresses, they kind of stem from you know, our humans' demand for food, energy, and water that's causing these changes in the environment. Yeah, so, it, so it's not just one factor, it's just a bunch of different things that could contribute to that. That's right, yeah. yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the Smithsonian actually touched on how modern technology could be used uh, to help reintroduce species into the wild. I think like you mentioned, a reintroduction of species could be part of like conservation efforts. Um, so they mentioned things from 
in vitro fertilization to things like cloning. Um, so would reintroducing the northern white rhino population, you think, be beneficial for the ecosystem as a whole? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I guess we wouldn't know what the impact would be until we do it. Mm -hmm. And until then, we can only speculate what it would mean for the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, and as mentioned in the article, we are pretty far from being able to employ many of these assisted reproduction strategies suggested in the article, right? So they suggested things like the artificial insemination of the two remaining female northern white rhinos mm -hmm. or fertilizing frozen eggs with sperm stored in um, cryogenic collections like that of the San Diego Zoo mm -hmm. um, and implanting them into a, into a southern white rhino surrogate mother. Yeah. Or the third thing that they um, suggested was perhaps hybridizing um, the northern white rhino with a male southern white rhino. Right. Right. So all these things were the stuff that they um, suggested. I think it might be able, it might be safe to introduce a northern white rhino if we kind of succeed in the first method, which is the artificial insemination of the one or of the two or one or two of the remaining uh, uh, female northern white rhinos. Mm -hmm. As for the strategy of hybridizing, um, I'm not quite sure or I'll be a little bit uh, cautious of that. Um, first, it might be really expensive. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, I think we are still very far away from being able to do that. So that would require a lot of um, funding from mm -hmm. different places, like it, from private donors or from governments. And the result, the, or the resulting hybrid rhino would be different from the original um, mm -hmm. northern white rhino anyway that uh, we want to recover. So given its high costs, would conservation monies be better spent protecting the southern um, white rhino population because we know that currently there are about 20,000 southern white rhinos that are um, still in the original habitat and this population of, um, of southern white rhinos are actually under threat from poaching as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, money might be better spent on this population as well as other um, species of, of animals that are kind of on the brink of extinction mm -hmm. rather than spending it like figuring out how we can hybridize a uh, um, northern white rhino with a southern white rhino. Okay. But that's my personal opinion. Yeah. yeah. As I think I, I do agree with you. I feel like, um, you know, we don't really know exactly what to expect. If we do reintroduce um, the animal population for the northern white rhinos, um, because this was uh, just very recent, so we haven't really had a lot of time to see what kind of effect that, that would have on the ecosystem, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, totally. There's, there's no way to find out until we do it. Um, we, you know, I think that if you, if the original northern white uh, rhino phenotype um, can be, you know, can be introduced back into the environment, there shouldn't be any kind of ecological impact because we are just replacing the species that have gone extinct. But if we hybridize a northern white rhino with a southern white rhino, right? The genotype is different, the phenotype might be slightly different, mm -hmm. and we don't really know what the effects are. Okay. So I'm more cautious about that. Right. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Alright, so if someone did want to go into this field of conservation and uh, do this sort of work, what kind of path would they need to take? Yeah, so that's a great question. So uh, personally, I had uh, an undergraduate degree in biological sciences. Mm -hmm. 
and then I did my masters in biological sciences, and then after my masters, I did a PhD in um, ecology and evolutionary biology. Mm -hmm. um, so to be a conservationist or to be, I mean, there are many many paths or there are many uh, conservation related jobs. Mm -hmm. um, if if a person wants to do underground conservation, then I would say you know it would be great to do a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in ecology or conservation ecology or environmental management or wildlife management, mm -hmm. and uh, and this person will be able to get like a good uh, field-based job in conservation. Mm -hmm. But if a person wants to do research or lead research in conservation then this person will almost certainly have to do a PhD first. Okay. And often it would mean that this person would also have to do a PhD, would have to do a postdoctoral fellowship or uh, be in a job before they can uh, become competitive to be a professor. Mm -hmm. um, but again, there are many, there's a broad range of jobs, right? Like you can do research at a university or you can do research in a zoo. But most of the time, um, in order to lead research, uh, you would have to typically get a PhD and get some research experience. Okay, so more of like the the hands-on sort of conservation work. That's um, are people still encouraged to go get their bachelor's degree for that as well? Oh yeah, for sure. To, yeah, to do hands-on work. Yeah, um, like so, a friend of a really good friend of mine, Ruben Clemens, does a lot of hands-on conservation work in Malaysia, trying to conserve tigers mm -hmm. by um, ensuring that uh, there are petrol teams patrolling um, the edges of forest to, pre to prevent poachers from coming in to um, poach the tigers or trap the tigers. Mm -hmm. And he has a PhD from James Cook University and he published a lot of work and is still currently publishing work. So even doing hands-on research, it, it, it might be good to get at least uh, a, a, a master's or a PhD so that you can understand the intricacies of, uh, of conservation and mm -hmm. the ecology behind conservation. Okay, all right. Um, and so I think that's all the questions I had. Would you be all right to talk a little bit more about your research, if that's okay yeah, with you? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, so could you just go ahead and sort of like reintroduce um, kind of like your research again? I know you did that at the very beginning, but we're going to use this as kind of like a transition in the podcast. So could you just tell me a little bit more about the research work that you do? Yeah. Um, yeah. So right now, um, so I just joined UT last year and um, I've set up several projects like one of them is um, a collaborative project between myself and my postdoc Matt Troyer and Matt is leading this project what we're doing here is that we're trying to figure out what is the impact of climate change or the likely impact of climate change on um, fish species that are occurring um, in the southern Appalachians mm -hmm. so we know that um, in, in, in the next 50 or 100 years, um, climate is going to change in terms of um, like temperatures are probably going to warm up. So we, know we, so we have um, good model predictions of how air temperature and precipitation is going to change. Mm -hmm. But we don't really know how this change in air temperature might translate to a change in stream water temperature. Mm -hmm. So what we did was that we put out 160... Um, water temperature loggers all across the southern Appalachians in multiple um, river basins mm -hmm. and what we're doing is we are trying to track really fine scale um, every 50 minutes what is the water temperature like so then we can set up a model linking air temperature 
at the present to water temperature at the present and use this model to predict future water temperature given future air temperature, mm -hmm. right? And, and at the same time, we are um, bringing fishes in the lab. So in fact, we have brought fishes in the lab and we have done experiments. We are measuring um, what is the maximum temperature uh, each fish species can tolerate. Mm -hmm. And from then, by combining the results of this experiment with our modeling results of stream water temperature, we can figure out how um, the distribution of the different species of fish would change in the future due to climate change. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a lot of different working parts going in together. Yeah. So was there a specific reason why you wanted to go um, into this project? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, I, I think the most important reason is that we are very strategically located. Um, so the Southern Appalachian region is the hotspot of um, freshwater fish diversity in North America. Mm -hmm. And even if you compare you know, different watersheds across the world, um, Southern Appalachian watersheds have a really high species richness. Just so it means that you know, for a given amount of area, um, w w watersheds in the Southern Appalachians harbor a lot more fish mm -hmm. than on average other watersheds. Um, so we're interested in um, seeing how climate change might impact fishes that are restricted to these watersheds. Mm -hmm. And also, we know that in the Southern Appalachians, there's a broad um, altitudinal gradient, right? Mm -hmm. Like there is, you know, lowlands all the way up to the mountains. And we know that lowlands are generally warmer, mountains are generally cooler. Mm -hmm. We know that climate change is going to make lowlands and mountains both warmer. So we are interested to see whether fishes are likely to move upstream, right? Mm -hmm. Because we expect as the lowland streams get warmer, perhaps the fishes are unable to tolerate the stream, the, the, the new temperatures in the stream anymore and therefore would have to move upwards to a cooler kind of um, habitat. Mm -hmm. Nice, yeah, yeah. That, is, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, so is there like a specific, um, I guess like direction you're hoping this research is going to go in or you're just kind of like still trying to see what you're going to get out of it? Yeah, so we have just like kind of analyzed our data and submitted our first paper for publication. Mm -hmm. So we're still waiting to hear it back because in science there's this peer review process where we have to write up a paper and then send it to a peer reviewed journal and the journal editor would then send out the paper to independent experts in mm -hmm. other institutions or universities so usually an editor would solicit reviews from anywhere from two to four reviewers and then the, the reviewers would go through the study with a fine comb, suggest ways to improve it and ultimately recommend whether the article should be accepted or should be revised or should be just rejected. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we are still in that process, the scientific process. Um, I mean, future plans would be... so. Right now, we looked at four species of fish. Mm -hmm. Future plans would be kind of to ex expand that and also look at non-lethal effects. Like for instance, how warming temperatures might affect not just survival, but other you know, characteristics like you know, would it affect uh, the, 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 the fecundity of the fish, for instance, or... Mm -hmm. um, how well it assimilates uh, food, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah, that does sound really interesting. Was there anything else you wanted to add on to that? Or? Yeah, um, and recently we also have done a 
uh, meta-analyses on coal mining impacts in southern mm-hmm. Appalachians, and we find that you know, coal mining is pr- pretty bad for aquatic biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was actually a U.S. You know, wide study, but most of the studies that we found and reviewed were... Um, no, actually all of the studies that we found and reviewed in our paper was from the southern was from the central and southern Appalachians issue, uh, region. Mm-hmm. So most of these studies dealt with mountaintop mining, or except for one, that one the one other study dealt with um, underground mining. But across all of these studies, on average, we found that streams that are affected by mining typically contain one third lower species richness and about only half as much uh, total abundance of biodiversity as streams that are not affected by mining. Mm-hmm. So we are finding like a really huge effect and, and this research actually just got published uh, not yesterday, the day before, the day before um, <laughs> um, in the journal Nature Sustainability. So mm-hmm. we are happy that that uh, came out. Um, as for future plans, what we are trying to do is to look at mining impacts in Southeast Asia, uh, particularly in Indonesia. So Mm -hmm. Indonesia um, is the world's fifth largest producer of uh, coal. Mm -hmm. And coal mining is um, literally under the radar there. Like it's it's an issue that hasn't received much attention. And we are interested to see how coal mining there are affecting uh, human livelihoods, uh, water quality, as well as stream biodiversity. Mm-hmm. So that's so that's a new project that we're starting. Yeah, yeah. and that um, that really does like have a major effect on everybody. So even though you said like this was this project would be like located uh, like centered around uh, the coal mining industry in Indonesia, but that but the research, sorry, the work that you will find from that research will impact everyone. You know, not just people in Indonesia, and I think that's really awesome. Um, yeah, I didn't know that there was like a, a really huge coal mining industry in Indonesia. That's really interesting to hear about. Yeah, definitely. Like even so, yeah. So even my friends who are working in Southeast Asia, working in Malaysia or Indonesia, looking at ecological issues, um, they have been mostly focused on agricultural issues rather than mineral extraction. So mm-hmm. they were really surprised when I told them that you know mining is a big issue in um, Indonesia. Yeah, and it's just something that. Um, very few people know about. Mm-hmm. So um, last summer, I actually partnered with an independent journalist um, who has done a lot of uh, investigative uh, reporting on coal mining mm-hmm. in Indonesia, and we visited some of these areas to talk with villagers um, into how they are affected by coal mining, how coal mining has affected um, their kind of rice production or their livelihoods and. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Awesome. So that concludes this episode of the Ask a Scientist podcast. Uh, To quickly recap, we covered what conservation is and why it's important, reasons how a species can become endangered and even extinct, as well as the steps you can take to work in conservation efforts. We also talked a little bit about um, Zingli's research work and the um, apparently underground uh, coal mining industry in Indonesia, which is really interesting. Um, So I want to thank Zingli again for being our guest on this episode and thank you for tuning in. So share this episode with a friend so they can learn something new and check back for more episodes released bi-weekly.